0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, February 9th, we are studying Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Again, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' disciples go out on the Sea of Galilee at their Lord's bidding. And his actions there on the sea, again, intend to show them the truth of who he is, but again, the disciples fail to fully grasp the truth. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Caleb Adams. Pastor Adams serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, welcome back to Sharp, Brian.
1: Thanks very much. Good to be with you again.
0: As we get started this morning, Pastor Adams, give us some context. We're at the end of Mark chapter 6. So what do we need to know about the gospel as a whole? The immediate context that will help us into these verses today.
1: Yeah, so um, just a few points about Mark's gospel that I think are, are helpful to keep in mind um, as you go throughout the gospel as a whole, but maybe especially this text in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, as, as maybe you've been talking about with some other guests Mark is often thought to be kind of the gospel according to Peter. Uh, many of the early church fathers speak about the close relationship that Mark and, and Peter had with one another, and the kind of traditional assumption throughout church history has been that Mark used Peter really as his main source in the writing of his gospel. And So, as we look at our text today, this might be kind of especially interesting as uh, Peter and the disciples are featured, as you just mentioned, in a pretty significant way, and we actually have... A very famous story featuring Peter um, that takes place during this time that Mark does not mention. So we can kind of talk a little bit about that. Uh, Mark is also um, very unique among the four gospels, just in the way that he writes. It's kind of a, a fast paced thrill ride through the ministry of Jesus. Uh, I remember in, in college, one of my professors described Mark's writing style as that of a, a very excited young school child who's been asked to tell a, a story that he's really, really excited about. Um, he uses the word Kai, you know, and all over the place. Um, and then Ayuthus immediately, we'll see that a couple of times uh, in our text today. And immediately, you know, he's just kind of like, and then, and then, and then, just always eager to to get into the next thing. And there's just a lot of action. But despite that, despite Mark's emphasis on the action and the cool, fun stuff that happens, um, there's also a a lot of detail that Mark gives. Um, Oftentimes in his different pericopes, when you compare it to the the parallels in the other Gospels, Mark actually gives a little bit more detail um, than some of the other Gospels. Um, Interestingly enough, that's not really the case today um, when you compare it to the parallel texts uh, that we have in Matthew 14 and John 6, um, which is kind of interesting to note as well, since that usually is um, the case with Mark.
0: Yeah, I mean we've been we've been coming off Chapter Five, particularly where Mark gives the account of the man with the demon on the other side of the sea, and the account of. Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue with blood. And there, you know, again, the detail that Mark will give when he does slow down is just very profound. I think you're right. Here was an opportunity, and we'll see this as we go through. There were opportunities in this text where he could have given more detail that he doesn't seem to. Maybe we can explore a little bit why he doesn't do that here. I think you've set that up well with, with the account with Peter. And we'll get into this. I don't want to spill too many beans here at the beginning. So in terms of the immediate context, what do we need to know?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the context is always important as we, we look at different texts of scripture and as we go through the gospels. Um, this one in particular is is very helpful to make sure we know where we're at um, because in this gospel, as well as in, in Matthews and Johns, um, what immediately precedes this is directly connected to the event that we're going to be talking about today. Um, so, our text follows right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. Um, Jesus and his disciples um, have been trying to, to find a place to rest just find a, a desolate, empty spot where they can can pray and just have some recuperation time. And uh, as you might remember, a large crowd follows them on foot. And so Jesus, of course, doesn't send them away and say, no, we're trying to rest. He does what he always does. He compassionately teaches them. He, he feeds them. He provides for them. You know, the 5,000 men, aside from women and children, with five loaves of bread and two fish, Uh, So, everybody eats and is satisfied. They take up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Um, So, this is an incredibly significant act, a very important um, sign in John's gospel, very important miracle that Jesus does here. And it leads right into um, what we're going to to be talking about in our text today. And the other thing I'd point out about the immediate context is just try to put yourself in the position of the disciples um, and Jesus, but maybe especially the disciples as we lead into what's about to happen. Uh, The whole point was they were trying to get away and find a little bit of of respite and retreat. And the crowds had followed them and they never really got that rest and recuperation that that they were looking for. Uh, They're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, you know, a desolate place. And they're just absolutely exhausted. Um, We don't know exactly where they are during the feeding of the 5,000, but um, we know they left kind of the, the Western shores of the Sea of Galilee and Maybe ended up somewhere close to Bethsaida, which is going to come up in our text. But So that's just kind of the context is the feeding of the 5,000 has just happened. It's late, and they're exhausted, and they haven't really had much rest, um, which leads us into (laughs) what happens next.
0: All right. So with that context in mind, we're reading today from Mark 6, beginning at verse 45. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. That is our text for today, Mark 6 verses 45 through 56. So, Pastor Adams, the scene, again, as you said, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. We got that favorite word of St. Mark's there. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat. So, why is Jesus sending his disciples ahead of him to the other side at this point?
1: That's an interesting question. It's one that um, we only have maybe a little bit of a hint at here in Mark. Mark. Um, and it's it's always good when you're reading the Gospels to read the Gospel that you're in, kind of for its own sake, and try not to read too much into it, um, which is difficult to do sometimes, especially as we get very familiar with some of these stories. Um, but then to bring in from other Gospels, maybe some additional secondary information can be helpful. So here, it's it's just striking as you read through Mark, um, you know, obviously, the, the immediately uh, Mark's moving on to the next big thing. Um, but just the way that he phrases this, um he made his disciples get into the boat. Um, the The Greek word there um, is is a, a verb that that can be translated as to force or or to compel or to constrain. Um, jesus is is obviously being, quite clear with the disciples as to what he wanted them to do. He's not really giving them much choice in the matter. And so, as you read through Mark's gospel, you, you might have to infer a little bit as to why this is. It could be the fact that, that they're so tired and they still haven't gotten the rest. He makes them get in the boat so that they can go and get their rest. Um, he clearly is going to be dismissing the crowd. So, that might have something to do with it. And so at this point, um, you can kind of bring in what we find out in the gospel of John during the same event where John makes it very plain that as a result of, of this miraculous feeding that the crowds have just experienced at Jesus' hands, they want to make him king. And so there's a, a little bit of a, a messianic kind of royal uprising in the works here. And so, in John's gospel, Jesus sends them away so that they don't get caught up in that, and, and then he deals with it and kind of retreats. Um, so, Mark doesn't explicitly state this, um, but there is definitely some some sense of urgency in his gospel as he introduces this pericope again with those those favorite words of his, and immediately. Um, and so, it's possible that that's just classic Mark, and he's just moving out in the next action sequence, but... It does seem, especially in light of the parallel in John, that, that there's a reason for the urgency, and so Jesus makes them get into the boat and uh, dismisses the crowd and and uh, so th- that's that's kind of you know piecing together uh, what what's taking place there.
0: I think that information from John is helpful that you know, and he he gives you a lot of the backstory there in John. It is, it is striking, and I don't know that I would have picked this up if you hadn't pointed it out, especially when you compare it to the way that Jesus challenged his disciples a bit in the previous text. You know, you give them something to eat. You take care of the crowd. And here all of a sudden, hey, now, now get out of here, guys. <laughs> and it, it's a striking. And, and I, I think, you know, bringing in John there is helpful. I wonder if there's something going on here. And as you were talking about the context, where at the beginning of the previous text, Jesus has this invitation to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. If that invitation is still in Jesus' mind and he's he's trying to do something with that invitation still for his disciples. And and maybe, and I'm not sure about this, you can tell me what you think. Maybe there's something that's as we've reading in this text with Jesus walking to the water on the if, if there's something there that, that he intends them to find some rest in what's about to happen. I don't know. I'm just, I'm kind of thinking, trying to put these two accounts together. I think what you said about the gospel of John, those probably the best thing.
1: Yeah. I, I love what, what you're thinking though, because you know, the idea of rest, you know, on the face of it, we read this text and we find out that they were seeking rest and they, they got the opposite. You know, yeah. their, the weariness of their ministry continues and then what's about to happen we see is you know what we might consider the, the very opposite of rest and yet i would say what what is the main point of this whole text um, is you know the identity of jesus and finding finding rest in him in the midst of everything else that yeah. may be going on so i yeah. think you're onto something there yeah
0: i think i think that might be something to to think about as we go through this so jesus he's going to make his disciples go to the other side he dismisses the crowd and then He goes up on the mountain to pray. This sounds like Jesus is doing what their initial intention was back in the previous text.
1: Yeah, you you almost feel a little bad for the disciples here because the whole point was to, to, you know, do this exact type of thing. He makes them get into the boat. and We're about to hear that that they don't really have a very restful experience, but he's up on the mountain uh, by himself praying. So there is, um, you know, a a disparity here. Mark seems to be making it, it very clear that Jesus is experiencing one thing and the disciples are experiencing another they've been sent off by Jesus commanded essentially uh, to get in the boat and and go across and Jesus you know dismisses the crowd again and John you get the sense that he's you know kind of avoiding this unruly mob and fleeing from them because they want to crown him king but here in mark they don't even really get much of a mention when it says after he had taken leave of them that them is you know probably the disciples and he just goes up on a mountain to pray and so Um, you know, verse 47 is in there. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. So this very clear difference between what's going on right now. Um, Jesus is alone on the land up on this mountain to pray and the disciples are out on the sea. Um, So this, you know, just to, to mention, this is something that Jesus does regularly throughout the gospels, right? Jesus seeks opportunities for solitude, and uh, opportunities to pray and to come to his Father and uh, just have those important moments that, that, of course, are a great example for, for all of us uh, to seek the same thing. Jesus often ascends mountains to commune with the Father. Um, it was kind of interesting, though. I, I didn't realize this before, but in my study of this text, I discovered that there are, there are only three explicit times, at least, in Mark's gospel where he does this sort of thing. Uh, the first is back at the very beginning in chapter one, right after the kind of the initial excitement in Capernaum, the beginning of his ministry. Uh, the second one is here in chapter six. And then the third time where Jesus retreats to pray um, is, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it seems that that in Mark's gospel, especially, he's kind of highlighting these three instances. Um, and some scholars have suggested maybe this is a, an indication that Jesus especially took time to pray when, you know, there was a temptation to abandon the the mission that that the father had given him, or something like that. Regardless, he's he's certainly you know resetting and uh, coming to to the father to spend time with him, and and as you pointed out, he gets the privacy and the rest yeah. that uh, he and his disciples had been looking for earlier.
0: Yeah, I, we talked a little bit about this back in chapter one, if if I'm remembering correctly, because you're right, Jesus goes and, and prays there. That there seems to be. I, and I like the way you connected the texts, especially to the Mark 14 passage. And I've, I've thought about this with other gospels as well. And I think it's true with Mark that whenever we see Jesus praying and there's not really a, a particular prayer request given that we should keep in mind that prayer request that we know he prays there in Mark 14, that he's praying mm-hmm. for his father's will. And I think that fits very well with what you laid out that Jesus is, at these moments, particularly in Mark's gospel, is being tempted perhaps to forsake the true nature of his ministry. Back in in Mark chapter one, his disciples come looking for him and say, "Hey, Jesus, come on, everybody's looking for you. Where, Where are you? And he says, we have to go to the other town so I can preach there also. And here, especially given what we know from John chapter six, Jesus has been tempted to become a bread king of sorts. He's Concerned for his own disciples, I I do think, you know, we kind of laid, there's this disparity and yet he hasn't lost concern for his disciples. I think that that becomes clear as the text plays out. So I think that same idea we should understand here that when Jesus goes on the mountain to pray, he's doing so partly as an example to us that this is important for people to pray. He is a human being and so he prays. But also we should understand Jesus as our savior here too, that he is praying here for us for the fulfillment of what he has come to do in the salvation of the world.
1: Yeah, maybe it's a, a foreshadowing of sorts of his ascension into heaven um, as he ascends the mountain to to intercede uh, for his people. And I love your connection of the, the Gethsemane prayer to all of these other prayer times. Um, we see that, you know, maybe not explicitly in some of these these texts like this one, uh, but certainly in other texts where, you know, Peter you know, rebukes Jesus for talking about his upcoming death. And yeah. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Um, another interesting omission from Mark's gospel, by the way. Um, but uh, yeah, Jesus is is so focused on his mission and never wavers from it and is constantly reconnecting with his father to say, not my will, but your will. Mm.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the other example I suppose that we could bring out would be from John 17. And again, I know we want to try to, as much as we can, stay keep Mark uh, for, for what Mark is giving us. But I think John 17, what's called the high priestly prayer helps too. And you look at what Jesus prays for there. He's praying concerning the glory of his father's name. He's praying for his disciples. Then his disciples. Now, every time we see Jesus praying and we get the words of the prayer, he's praying for us. And I think we can understand that when the request isn't specifically named as, as it is here now, as you pointed out, you, I mean, you've got Jesus alone praying on the mountain, but meanwhile, on the Sea of Galilee, it seems like the exact opposite experience for his <laughs> disciples. Uh, Mark continues in the account, really in verses 48 and following, he starts telling us about what's going on for the disciples there on the sea.
1: Yeah, so um, it's interesting as we talk about the the prayer of Jesus and his intercession for his people, for his followers, um, you know, Mark just has kind of this again, this really subtle way. I think of of indicating something to us. Uh, just the first few words there of verse forty eight, and he saw, um, Jesus saw yeah. that they were making headway painfully. Um, so a couple, you know, really important things here. Jesus is, as we're about to see, you know, I, he is Yahweh in in all of his fullness, and this whole text—that's the whole point of this. But he sees as as Yahweh sees now. It's unclear—is he up on the mountain and he's able to see what's happening out on, you know, the sea from his vantage point, or something like that? We know it's probably dark because it's very late. Maybe the the seeing that Jesus, you know, sees the disciples with here is is of a different sort. Maybe it's um, kind of a supernatural sort of understanding of of their plight. Regardless, um, what he sees is that the disciples are having a really tough time. Um, the Greek participle here is. Um, is, I just find these things interesting. It's often translated as uh, to be punished by physical torture mm. or torment. Um, so that's that's what the disciples uh, who are seeking rest are now experiencing late at night. Um, they're being punished by physical torture or torment as they're trying to row against the wind, um, which maybe, you know, our listeners have experienced as they've been out on a out on a lake or something in a, a canoe or a kayak or a rowboat and, you know, the winds against them. Uh, just kind of keep in mind how exhausted the disciples must have already been. Um, the whole purpose was to get to that desolate place and find rest, and they'd got none of it. Um, it was already late, as the disciples pointed out to Jesus. Um, yeah. You know, they kind of come to Jesus, say, hey, it's it's getting past dinner time. Send them away to get food. And um, <laughs> now the wind's against them and they, they're they just not really making much progress. Um, I think it was in the Lutheran Study Bible, as I was reading through this text, um, that had this, this helpful and kind of disturbing reminder um, that said, you know, keep in mind that it's Jesus who sent them on this voyage. Remember that, that verb, Jesus made them get in the boat and go. Uh, so in a very real way, it's fair to say that Jesus is the one who, who got them into this predicament. Um, you know, earlier he had said, you know, you give them something to eat one impossible command that he gave to his disciples. And now uh, we're finding out that it seems that he's asked two times in one exhausting night um, for his disciples to do essentially the impossible. Um, and so the, the disciples are in a bad way here. Uh, they're they're being tortured essentially and Jesus sees all of this. Um, another interesting thing to note, though, because I have sometimes uh, just personally have conflated, you know, Mark 4 and, and Mark 6, these different events. Um, there's a, a pretty, pretty stark difference. You know, in Mark 4, Jesus is sleeping in the boat and they, they're wondering if he even cares if they're going to die. And, you know, he comes and calms the, the winds and the waves and essentially saves their lives. Um, that's not really the case here. There's certainly some similarities. But the disciples' situation is really Presented to us as one of frustration and discomfort, uh, not one of a real danger necessarily. So it's important just to keep that in mind. What's about to happen is not really a, a rescue operation, at least not primarily, but something that I would say is is far more significant. Um, so Jesus sees this struggle and um, and he comes. Yeah, I think
0: that, I think that's a, a, an excellent point I, because in my own mind, I'm I'm thinking through Mark four as well. And one thing that I do think is similar based on what you were were saying, you know, that Jesus is the one that's responsible for putting them in this situation. That I think is one of the keys to understanding Mark four as well. Jesus is the one who says to his disciples there, let's go to the other side of the lake. It's Jesus idea to do that in Mark four. And it's Jesus idea here to do this in Mark chapter six. But other than that, like you said, it's not, it is, it is interesting. You don't really get a reaction from the disciples in terms of them being out there on the lake until they see Jesus. And then until he gets into the boat with them and we get an even stronger uh, verb about what happens to their reaction after that. But I think that's a, a, a good point. This is not a rescue mission of sorts. Rather, Jesus intends to do something else, which I think fits with what we were bouncing around earlier about Jesus wanting his disciples to have rest. That despite their physical circumstances out there on the lake, what's going to happen is intended to bring them a real sort of a real sort of rest, uh, not the one that maybe they were expecting, uh, but one that he intends to give them. I think those things fit together.
1: Yeah, I think um, you know Jesus is the one who who tells them to embark in both cases. Jesus is getting rest of different sorts in both cases, whether sleeping in the boat or finding the solitude up on the mountain. And then um, you have this, this chaotic event. And in Mark four, it's the, the the storm really. And here it's something else. It's actually the coming of Jesus. That's right. Um, right. Yeah. Well, one,
0: one thing briefly, just because I'm not sure if you, you mentioned this, we've been talking about how exhausted the disciples would have been. The, ESV reads the this is going to happen in the fourth watch of the night, which I think adds to the picture of the disciples' exhaustion. What's the fourth hour of the night, or excuse me, fourth watch of the night?
1: Yeah, so the fourth watch of the night. This would be by the the Roman accounting, which the Jews um, ended up adopting. So there were four watches of the night. So this is the last one. So we were told it was late when the feeding of the five thousand happened. Mark then reiterated when it was evening, kind of you know giving another indication that it's that it's late uh, but here we find out exactly how late it is this would be actually from 3 to 6 a.m. so not only is this happening in the middle of the night but really kind of toward the end of the night in the middle of, of all the exhaustion that that we've been talking about so
0: this is potentially, they've been awake for 24 hours. I mean, I, we don't know exactly when their day gets started, but they've been awake a long time. They're exhausted. And we've got about two and a half minutes here, Pastor Adams. So we'll get started into this. The main event is that Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. There's lots that we can talk about here, but just get us started.
1: Yeah, well, so Jesus sees their struggle and comes to them. So as you read through Mark's gospel and you get to this point this is good news, right? Jesus sees their struggle. He's coming. He must be coming to to help, uh, to give comfort, to give you know peace or you know the rest that they've been looking for. And uh, we find out that, that maybe things are a little different than what we have in mind. Um, Jesus is you know had said, "Go on ahead of me," and this is apparently how he plans to rejoin them. And you know, I like how Mark just says it. He came to them walking on the sea, he just kind of throws it out there. Um, the disciples are struggling, but Jesus is coming. And um, we have, you know, the feeding of the 5,000 and then walking on the sea, these two incredible kind of nature related miracles uh, paired up. But yeah, it, you know, the understatement here, he came to them walking on the sea, just has incredible significance. Um, clearly what Jesus is doing here is something something supernatural, something only only a God can do. That was true in the the Greco Roman tradition, um, but it's you know it's especially true in the the Hebrew Bible and um, kind of the the context of you know the disciples' understanding of of how God works. Um, this is something that that only Yahweh can do, and you know there are several places throughout the Old Testament um, that you know we can often get pointed to when we're talking about this sort of thing. Uh, Job nine is a you know, a famous passage about this, where Job is talking about that God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And you think maybe even of of God's speeches at the end of Job, you know, and his power over Leviathan. And, you know, you have all the different Psalms that connect the deliverance at the Red Sea um, to to what God, you know, does in, in terms of having power over the sea. And there's some very clear connections that Mark seems to be making here.
0: Yeah, Jesus is revealing himself here as the God of Israel, the one true God. And we'll see how that continues to play out here in Mark chapter 6 with Pastor Caleb Adams. You'll listen to Sharper Iron on Fuel. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, February 9th. We're studying Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. We have Pastor Caleb Adams with us. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, prior to the break, we were looking at Jesus walking on the sea. This is the main event of this text, the primary thing that Jesus has intended to do for his disciples. He has seen them. He is coming to them. The contrast is is Great and perhaps a a bit ironic, maybe even a bit humorous. The disciples are making headway so painfully, and Jesus simply walks on the sea. He shows very clearly that He is the God of the Old Testament, the God who created the water, the God who rules over the water. Here He is walking on the water. And Mark says He meant to pass by them. Now, That just sounds strange, (laughs) which isn't all that out of line with some of the things we've seen in the gospel of Mark. In the gospel of Mark, the writer, you know, the evangelist Mark often will describe Jesus in what seems strange ways to us. This seems a bit strange. Maybe there's something more there. What do we make of this that Jesus intended to pass them by?
1: Yeah, this, this always bothered me growing up and, you know, reading this text, coming across it. What exactly is it, is it talking about? You know, this this Greek verb is par erkomai, so to, to come by or to come past. Um, it's troubled a lot of people, actually, over the years, and there are a lot of different possible explanations of this. Uh, the most popular one is that Mark's not trying to communicate what, what Jesus' intention was, but rather kind of... How it looked from the disciples' point of view. So, as they're in the boat, it seems like he's trying to pass them by. That's that's kind of the way that that some translations you know present it, and it it makes some sense. And maybe there's something to that. Um, there are a couple other possibilities. <laughs> some commentators have said he's he's almost having fun with them. He's going to go beat them to their destination. You know, like having a little race. And um, you know, you mentioned that they're struggling so painfully, and. Um, the church father origin said he came to them walking on the sea, which for him had no waves or wind. Yeah. So it's not really a very fair race if that's what's going on here. Um, another possibility is he's trying to test the disciples faith um, or that, you know, some have said, well, he wanted to pass by them, but didn't intend to be seen by them or, you know, he wanted to remain unrecognized. And none of those just really seem to, to get at what Mark is, is really getting at here. Um, so, you know, is there, there are just kind of a couple of words here. One is you know, Thelo that that Greek verb. He intended to. This is clearly something Jesus is doing on purpose, and he has a purpose in it. Um, and then just that phrase to to pass by. Um, a lot of people have picked up on the fact that this is a, a very loaded word or loaded phrase that goes back to the Old Testament and some very significant moments in the Old Testament because God passed by uh, some of his people, some of his uh, prophets and leaders in the past. And two of the most prominent ones are Moses and Elijah. So in Exodus, actually in a couple of instances, he talks about it and then Moses experiences this, but Yahweh says to Moses, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then there's that famous you know, instance with Elijah after the the Mount Carmel situation, he goes and he's lamenting, saying he's you know, the last one alive, and God comes and appears to him. But God says, "There, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord." And then the writer First Kings says, "Behold, the Lord passed by." So this is a, a again a very significant phrase, which I think Mark is intending us to connect back to these Old Testament. Um, instances where God reveals himself and reveals something of of his nature to his people. This is where, you know, in Exodus, where God says that he is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and forgiving sins. Um, so so Mark seems to be indicating that Jesus intentionally wants us to see this experience as one of of Yahweh, the true God, revealing himself, revealing something about his nature. It's interesting, too, I think just in the context of Mark, you know, you have these pretty clear connections, I would say, to Moses and Elijah. And in just a, a few chapters coming up in in chapter nine, we're going to have the, the transfiguration where Jesus is on top of the mountain and who shows up, but Moses and Elijah. And what's the purpose of that text? What's the purpose of that event? It's, again, to, to show forth the glory of Jesus, his identity as As true God. And so, you know, as we come up this this coming weekend on Transfiguration Sunday, um, might be kind of a a neat connection to make as well.
0: Yeah, I I think,
1: I I like the way that you explain that. I
0: think that the meaning to pass by them, or he wanted to pass by them, he willed to pass by them, we could even translate that, I think, that, again, it, I think it makes that same connection where Jesus is intending to give his disciples something that rest that they haven't yet received the rest that it seems they're not getting out there on the sea of Galilee. That's what he's intending to give them. That's what he wants to give them. He, he means to pass by them. He means to show them who he is in truth by walking on the sea. I I think that, I think that really fits well. It makes this text more than something, really cool that Jesus can do you know it's, it's not just a race to the other side I was imagining <laughs> Peter and John when they race to the, the empty tomb on Easter morning <laughs> it's, this isn't another case of that this is Jesus intending to show his disciples who he is uh, but they miss it And this is where we do start now to see what are the disciples thinking. As you pointed out, they haven't been terrified up to this point, or at least if they were, Mark hasn't told us that. But now we start to find out what's going on in the disciples' minds as they begin to react to what they see. So how do they react to Jesus intending to pass by them and show them who he is?
1: Right, So, I mean, think about Moses' experience and, you know, you have this throughout the Old Testament when people encounter God, you know, Isaiah and Isaiah 6 fears for his life and all of these different things. And Moses has seen God's back, you know, in other places it says he spoke to him face to face. But here, you know, the disciples see the face of God and the face of Jesus. I mean, this is kind of, I would say, the main point of this text, right? As we've been talking about, Jesus is disclosing, disclosing his divine identity to his disciples, and they miss it because of of how they react and how they interpret what's happening. Uh, the disciples are terrified. Uh, they're shocked. They're confused. And um, they, <laughs> they completely misinterpret what's happening. Um, they understand, as Jesus means for them to understand, that you can't just walk on water. You know, people aren't able to do this. You know, they get that much. They understand that part, um, but their conclusion is the wrong one. Uh, they think he's a ghost. Uh, the Greek word that's used here is phantasma. It's, you know, we get the word phantasm from this uh, just really literally means a ghost. Um, it's kind of interesting. This is the only place in the new Testament um, other than in Matthew's parallel where we have this word used. Um, and so It's really just kind of significant and a little ironic that the waves and the wind uh, had not really thrown them into a panic as far as we can tell, but the sight of this figure walking on the sea does. Um, And so, you know, on the one hand, the disciples can maybe be excused a little bit for reacting this way. Um, What other explanation could there be? We know that the people can't walk on water and, you know, Jesus, to be fair, hadn't really told them that he was going to be catching up with them while they're out in the middle of the, of the sea of Galilee. Um, And so, you know, they, they kind of default to this, this popular Jewish superstition that said that the appearance of spirits at night, you know, bring disaster. You know, they, they think maybe it's this, this water spirit kind of like, uh, you know, Elsa and Frozen 2 experiences. And it's kind of, you know, discombobulated by as well. And so, uh, yeah, they're, they're terrified and maybe understandably. So sure. It's not too hard. I think
0: to put ourselves in the disciples shoes at that moment and see why they would have been surprised and frightened and react the way they do at this point. And so Jesus, he's still got that intention to give them this rest to show them who he is. And he does that now with his word and he speaks, take heart. It is. I do not be afraid. What is the the gospel that's there for the disciples in those words?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's really kind of three things here. You have two commands and then sandwiched in between the two commands is just a, a statement of, of his identity. And so the commands really, you know, are two ways of stating the same thing. Take heart, do not be afraid, you know, take courage. Um, don't fear. Um, he's offering you know calm and peace. And maybe that that elusive rest to their troubled hearts. Um, You know, this command is one that, that is prevalent throughout scriptures. God is constantly telling his people not to be afraid, maybe in particular when they encounter a, A terrifying sight like this. Um, In the context of Mark's gospel, I find it interesting that this command is echoed, you know, in chapter 16, uh, when Jesus has risen from the dead. And what's really unique about Mark is that the initial reaction of the women who are told, don't be afraid, Jesus has risen from the dead, is similar, actually, to what happens here. They respond, at least initially, with with confusion and fear, and they say nothing at first. Um, And we kind of see that same reaction here. From Jesus's disciples, uh, but Jesus gives them more than just a, a command to take heart and not be afraid. Um, he says in the Greek "ego eimi," which is "I am," um, with a, an extra emphasis, you know, stating the the pronoun at the beginning there. Um, and so, there's a lot of discussion about exactly the significance of this because, on the one hand, um, this could just be kind of the the Greek way of saying, "Hey, it's me," right. you know. So when you when you come in the door, you know coming home from work, and you say to your wife or your kids, "Hey everybody, it's just me you know don't worry, it could just be the sense here um it certainly is is part of the sense here. Jesus is just identifying himself to his disciples, and his presence alone is meant to bring the you know, the, the ability to take heart and, and to take away their fear. But, you know, it's just, it's significant that Jesus says ego eimi, which is the same, you know, same way you would state in Greek, the translation of, of the divine name of Yahweh. You know, so given to Moses in Exodus chapter three, I am who I am. And so clearly in in other places in the gospels Jesus does use this phrase in that sort of way. I, I think to again John's gospel in the garden of Gethsemane, you know they come to arrest him and Jesus says, "Hey, who are you looking for?" And they say, "Jesus of Nazareth." And he says, "Ego me. And they just fall flat on their faces onto the ground yeah. because you know the presence of Yahweh has just been been revealed and stated. And so I I think we're missing a little bit if we're content to say Jesus is really just saying, "Hey guys, it's me." Yeah. Um, I think what Jesus seems to be saying here is, "Hey guys, it's me." And by the way, that me is Yahweh, <laughs> the one true God, the one who who treads on the seas but doesn't leave footprints behind. Yeah, um, I, pretty incredible.
0: I, I think it's it's just it's practically impossible to read those words. In, in the Greek New Testament and not have that context brought to mind that God gives us in the old where he He gives us the divine name and when we hear those words on the lips of Jesus particularly at a moment like this I think we have to bring that, that context to play so that yeah as you said it's not just hey it's me but Jesus is saying I am the God of the old Testament, what they had missed by sight. Now he intends to give them through the hearing of his word that they hadn't caught it when he was passing them by, they became afraid. And so now he intends to use his word to say, I am, I am the God of the old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the one true God here for you. There is no need to be afraid. He now gives them that rest in his word, which they had missed in sight and now he gets in the boat, and now the the disciples' reaction gets a bit darker, if I can say it that way. Take us into to how this text concludes.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, first of all, he gets into the boat with them, and immediately something happens. You know, the wind ceased. Um, the wind that had been such a you know an antagonist to the disciples for hours, all of a sudden is is powerless, is just completely gone. Mark's clearly making a connection between the presence of Jesus and his stepping into the boat and the stopping of the wind, you know, kind of hearkening back again to to chapter four. And so, um, we have, you know, the calming of the storm, if you will, although that doesn't really seem to be the main point here. It's kind of of just an after effect. Um, The main point is the identity of Jesus as Yahweh, the true God, Um, That is it is in their midst. It is revealing himself, uh, the face of God to them in the boat. And so, you know, there's there's this incredible connection again to to Yahweh and his power over the sea that nobody else has that Jesus demonstrates here again, this time almost as an afterthought. Um, This is certainly no. Coincidence. But with all the similarities between those two, uh, John 4, or sorry, Mark 4 and Mark 6, there's some pretty stark differences as well. Um, In chapter 4, Jesus had used his words to rebuke the wind and the waves. Uh, This time, Jesus doesn't have to say anything at all. And so, you know, maybe we're supposed to see this as an even greater demonstration of his power over the wind and the waves. He doesn't even have to say anything if he doesn't want to. Now, we also, you know, notice that the disciples don't say anything in Mark's, you know, account here either. Maybe kind of like the women in in Mark chapter sixteen at first. Um, But yeah, this is a a pretty incredible thing. Um, This is where, also, by the way, we get into um, that. That Petrine omission, you know, the famous story of Peter, maybe one of the most famous stories of Peter, that that Peter's gospel, if you will, leaves out. You know, so we know that it's in this instance, you know, this particular event where Peter calls out to Jesus and says, "If it's you, you know, if if it is, you know, if ego a me is to be trusted, then invite me to come out." And he walks and falls, and Jesus picks him up, brings him into the boat. Um, no mention of that here whatsoever. Um, and there are different reasons that some have given. Maybe Peter was a little bit embarrassed by that story and leaves it out. Um, of course, there's a lot of other cause for embarrassment here, if that's going to be our argument. Um, perhaps Peter you know, doesn't really have a lot of interest in you know, putting the, the focus on himself. Um, it's interesting. Sometimes I think we make that story about Peter and his faith. And if we have the same faith, we'll also be able to do incredible things like stepping out on the water and walking on the sea when really I think the, the thrust of that is um, Peter thinks he can walk on water and what happens and who does he need to pull him up out of the sea? Yeah. Um, and you know, Peter's rebuke for his lack of faith. He, so he regardless- probably should have stayed in the boat is the way that I've always thought about <laughs> Matthew 14.
0: But anyway, that's, that's, that's Matthew. You can go back and listen to uh, you can listen to last, last year's study on Mark Matthew 14. If you want to find out more about that anyways,
1: Pete gets left out here in Mark. So here, yeah the the identity of Jesus is really um, you know exactly what Mark is trying to to emphasize here, and perhaps he just doesn't want anything to distract from that. Yeah. Um, but what's really interesting is that's that's the the point of this text and the point of Jesus doing all this, why he chose to pass by them, and the disciples um, again just don't don't get it at all. Uh, the way that that Mark says this is they were utterly astounded, and not in a not in a good way. For they did not understand about the lobes, but their hearts were hardened. So first of all, they, they didn't understand about the lobes. So this miracle that they had just witnessed of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, Mark seems to indicate that perhaps even more than some of the other miracles they've witnessed so far, that that really should have taught them something about the identity of Jesus. Uh, they should have been able to pick up on that. And uh, in fact, you know, in chapter eight of Mark, Jesus is going to explicitly kind of interrogate them about the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000 and say, do you not yet understand? Um, they didn't hear and, and they don't at that point. Uh, the disciples are, are clearly revealed to be out of their depth, um, which was a good pun I found in a, a commentary there. <laughs> well done. Well done. Um, but yeah, I wish I could take credit for it. <laughs> but, yeah. So they're, they're astonished. They're confused. And then worst of all, Mark says they're, they're hard hearted. Mm. Um, and so this pericope kind of comes to this surprisingly negative conclusion. What I found interesting is uh, throughout, you know, this pericope and the one before it with the feeding of the 5000, there are some very very clear parallels um, to the Exodus story. Mm-hmm. Most notably, you know, the provision of, of bread by God himself through the manna and then God making a way through an impassable sea. But another parallel is the hardness of heart that the the disciples um, are attributed with here. I mean, Exodus, the hardness of heart belongs to Pharaoh. And here in Mark's gospel, the hardness of heart um, so far has been attributed to Jesus' enemies. And so it's really concerning and and kind of the stark turning point that this is said of jesus's own disciples Hmm. you know they saw jesus multiply the loaves which should have clued them in on his identity there were 12 leftover baskets that should have been a pretty big hint to them as well of some significance there then they see him traversing the sea and and they still don't get who he is Um, he is um you know they are they're hard-hearted. Um, they they don't understand. You know, earlier they had asked, "Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him?" And you know, here they're just rendered completely speechless. Um, Mark connects this to their their lack of faith and understanding of who Jesus is, and and we kind of see that this is really a, a turning point. You know, earlier in this chapter, they were sent out by Jesus. That's where we get the word apostles, apostello. They're sent out to be his messengers. And they come back and they're weary and all this happens and, and they're revealed to not even understand the identity of the one who sent them out uh, to proclaim the kingdom. And so, um, you know, the, there's kind of this famous thing in Mark's gospel called the messianic secret that Jesus tells people not to reveal you know, who he is and what he's done. And the irony here is, is that messianic secret seems to be kept even from those uh, who are you know, tribute to these incredibly privileged, you know, special moments of revelation. And so it's really kind of a, um, a negative ending to, to this event, um, which of course is going to point us to their lack of understanding going forward as Jesus talks about his, his upcoming death and resurrection and then the you know even lead into the the resurrection account there in chapter 16.
0: Yeah, that that is certainly a feature in Mark's gospel the way that the disciples are very often portrayed in negative aspect. I mean, there's no punches pulled. And so, you know, does Mark omit the thing about Peter to try to spare Peter some embarrassment? Uh, you know, we could speculate, but the point of that is that, you know, Peter doesn't escape embarrassment. If anything, the embarrassment is even worse to say that their hearts were hardened mm-hmm. and and you were, you know, drawing the parallels to the Exodus account. I wonder if, if that might invite us to think about the disciples in line with that generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt and grumbled and grumbled and grumbled and grumbled along the way who over and over. I mean, and even during the, the ten plagues, you know, they get mad at Moses. You're, you're making it worse on us, man. And and I wonder if, if there's a point of comparison between the disciples, if Mark really is, is setting that up. I'll have to, to think about that as we continue through this this gospel well, account.
1: And in, in that, throughout that Exodus account, you have the glory of God visibly present yeah. you know in the cloud and in the fire and despite all of that i mean to to put the the grumbling of israel in the context of yahweh being physically present with them and revealing himself to them it, it's it's pretty incredible it's very similar in a lot of ways yeah i think
0: wasn't it is it dr lessing who used to say and probably still says that you you could take israel out of egypt but you couldn't take egypt out of israel and, and maybe yeah. maybe yeah. that's what's going on here with the disciples. That same hardness of heart that was evident there among the Egyptians is still evident in Israel. And Jesus has come to to give them a heart of flesh to, to throw in some Ezekiel there as well. Uh, we've got about five minutes here, Pastor Adams. And we've still got this, this last bit of, of text I want to let you comment on at least a little bit before giving us your closing thoughts. You get a, a bit of a summary of... Jesus' ministry going forward from here. He he, and the disciples land at Gennesaret, and, and again, there's this summary of, of what's going on. Give us, again, we've got about five minutes here to, to wrap things up this morning.
1: Yeah, so um, just a, a couple quick things here. I mean, one of the things that um, is significant about this text is just trying to figure out exactly what and where things are happening. Um, because, you know, you might remember Jesus said, get in the boat and go to Bethsaida. Um, so their supposed destination is on kind of the Northeast side of the sea and they end up at Gennesaret, which is on the Northwest side or even kind of the, the Western shore. So, um, that's significant. I don't know if I know exactly why or how, um, a lot of people say, well, you know, the storm had blown them off course and all of that. Um, Although the wind stopped when Jesus stepped in and maybe, um, you know, there was a lesson in that, you know, you think you're going to one place and you end up in another place and there's more work to do. Um, so again, we just get this sense that the disciples aims to find rest or to do whatever it might be, or to go to Bethsaida, things just aren't really working out for them very well. And yet God continues to, to work through this and Jesus and, and his disciples continue to minister to the people there. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a, an interesting little, little tidbit, but the main thing that I would point out here would be the contrast that we have between the, the section we just read and the disciples are left described as hard-hearted, completely misunderstanding or not understanding at all about the loaves. They don't understand who this guy is who just walked to them on the sea, even though that should have been a very clear indication of what's going on. They don't recognize Jesus for who he is. And you go to verse 54, and when they got out of the boat, the people Mm -hmm. immediately recognized him. Now, this isn't to say that the people here, the crowds have a full understanding of Jesus as you know Yahweh himself, the one who treads upon the seas and, and all of that. Um, but there is, I think, a, a pretty clear contrast that Mark wants us to pick up on here. The disciples do not recognize Jesus for who he is. But as soon as they get out of the boat, the people who really don't have any of the information that the disciples do immediately recognize him. Um, they don't recognize him in all of his fullness, but they recognize him as as this incredible healer and, and they flock to him. And that's really how Mark wraps up this chapter is, um, you know, wherever he came in villages, cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. They kind of commandeer the marketplaces for this purpose and they implore him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Um, and so, you know, this is just this very brief summary, really, like you said, and it's the third time in Mark's gospel that he's done this. We had one in chapter one, one in chapter three, um, we're being taught that that people are a priority for Jesus, and their needs are a priority. you know when they were seeking rest and the people came and were hungry, um, Jesus taught them and fed them. Um, when he gets to to shore and his disciples after this, all of this goes on, and all these people come seeking healing, uh, He heals them and and not one of them goes without that healing. Um, just incredible. I mean, we have a contrast here with with Nazareth that was, you know took place earlier in the chapter where it says, you know, Mark kind of interestingly says he was not able to do you know many mighty works there because of their lack of faith so we have Nazareth not believing we have the disciples not believing you know his hometown and his followers who should know about him and and these people recognize him and, and come to him for healing and there's a, a couple of of callbacks too um, to earlier in the gospel you know it mentions that they um, you know they brought the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was which which brings us back, you know, to earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter two, that famous story of the paralytic being brought on a bed and, and lowered down through the roof to Jesus. And then, you know, we have the, the people just asking if they can just touch the fringe of his garment. You know, the, the cresped on the, the blue tassel that Israelite men were supposed to wear um, on the four corners of their garment, um, which harkens back to chapter five when that woman had touched Jesus's garment and, and was made well because of her faith. And so, Mark seems to be in this just very quick summary here indicating that, you know, those really personal, powerful, you know, stories of the paralytic and this woman who was bleeding um, and just the emotional charge that you get from reading those, um, that stuff was happening all the time. This is what Jesus' ministry was about. Um, Jesus was always there for people. And the, you know, those individuals that we kind of place ourselves in their position and think, what must that have been like? Um there were just countless instances of that. This is kind of maybe, you know, a Mark version of the end of John's gospel where he says, Jesus did so much more than all of this. Um, this is this just barely touches, you know, the surface of what he did. But I've written this so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. Well, Mark's doing the same thing. He's writing this so that we might believe that Jesus is, is Yahweh who feeds his people, walks on the sea and and heals all those who come to him in faith
0: yeah what what the disciples missed mark would have us understand and believe as well pastor caleb adams is the pastor at trinity lutheran church in bend oregon helping us this morning with mark 6 verses 45 through 56 pastor adams thanks for being our guest today
1: thank you very much
0: I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 6 or the gospel according to St. Mark as a whole, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from our listeners on Sharper Iron. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.